Why don't we pray before we jump into session five? Father, thank you again for your word, which is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. And we pray as we start these early events in the life of Jesus that we would learn about him and learn to walk more closely with you. For we pray in his wonderful name. Amen. Jesus has been born in Bethlehem, and now we're going to see after he's worshipped by the wise men that it is a great offense to King Herod. And so when we jump into the harmony in paragraph 15, after the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Get up, take your child and his mother, and flee to where? Egypt, and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to look for the child to kill him. And they got up and took the child and his mother during the night and went to Egypt, and he stayed there until Herod died. In this way, what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet was fulfilled. I called my son out of Egypt. So even in the fleeing to Egypt, uh, there's a fulfillment of messianic prophecy, the son referring figuratively to Israel in the Old Testament here, literally to Jesus. Then verse 16, Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men. See, they were not only wise men, they were very tricky men. He became enraged, and he sent men to kill all the children in Bethlehem and throughout the surrounding region from the age of two and under, according to the time he had learned from the wise men. And again, that's why we believe Jesus was two or so when this all happened, and that he was probably a toddler. We do know he was living in a house, and Herod, we know, dies in 4 B.C., so we're dealing here with an event that happened in 5 or 6 B.C. in terms of the birth of Christ. But even that fulfills what was spoken of by Jeremiah the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud wailing, Rachel weeping for her children, and they did not want to be comforted because they were gone. And there's another fulfillment in a, in a, in a figurative way of the Jews who were killed and put to death and deported to Babylon at the end of the Old Testament, and that's a picture of the anguish and the grief that the Jewish mothers are suffering here in and around Bethlehem. Now, as we get to paragraph 16, verse uh, 19 of Matthew 2 says, After Herod died, which is, we know, 4 B.C., an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and returned to the land of Israel. Now, the question is, you know, what did they do to survive financially in Egypt? My guess is that they had the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. All this is very costly stuff, and they had money to survive the year or so that it took to survive down in, in Egypt. And Egypt is always very important in the Scripture. I won't take time to develop it here, but there's always a role for Egypt right up until the second coming of Jesus. But the bad news is, as they got to Egypt, it says, when Archelaus, when they heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. When Herod died in 4 B.C., the land of Israel was divided up into four parts. We're going to learn these parts, some of them, as we start the next session. And he had four sons. One of them was Archelaus, who was just as bad as old Herod was. Herod was so evil that he killed at least one of his wives. He killed at least four of his sons. He killed off a mother-in-law along the way. Caesar Augustus said it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. And in Greek, the word for pig and son are very similar. One is benayah and what is Habanah. And so he was, he was very much a stay, saying at the time, Herod's a crazy man, and you're safer off to be a pig, because Herod, uh, as a Jew, would not kill and eat a pig. At any rate, Mary and Joseph bring baby Jesus north. They don't stay in Judea uh, after being warned in a dream 
Joseph went to the regions of Galilee, and he came to a town called Nazareth and lived there. Then what was spoken of by the prophets was fulfilled. Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Now, let me just, again, we're going to go back to this map, and this map will be the handout that you get next week so we don't wear out our copy machine here. And we're dealing with Egypt, which is down here around this bend of the Mediterranean. And they come back, and rather than going to Bethlehem, they go all the way back to where the original angel had appeared to them in Nazareth. And again, they have a home there. They have the remnants of a business there. Uh, They probably have family there as well. But this was uh, indicated, verse 23, to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophets, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. In this Matthew 2 account, there are all four kinds of fulfilled prophecy. Okay, you have the literal, literal fulfillment. Be- Micah 5.2, Bethlehem is where the king has come, and Bethlehem is where the king is born. And that's literal, literal. Then you have the literal figurative and the figurative little in the other ones. Where out of Egypt have I called my son. Well, you have the figurative son in the Old Testament and the literal son in the New Testament. Okay, you have the weeping in Ramah, which is literal in the Old Testament, but figurative in the New Testament. And here you've got the prophecies that say Jesus will be called a Nazarene. Now, who can tell us? at least one prophecy that says that Jesus would be a Nazarene. Very good class. There are no prophecies that say Jesus will be a Nazarene. But a Nazarene in this context was not a Nazarite. Remember, John the Baptist was a Nazarite. From the womb of his mother he was filled with the Holy Spirit, did not drink wine or strong drink or touch a dead person or animal. But a Nazarene was a person who was from Nazareth. Nazareth was a miserable little town, okay? It's up here kind of in the middle of nowhere. It was just a few families lived there, but it housed a Roman garrison. And if you could pick the worst town in all of Polk County, Haines City, it would be Nazareth, okay? (laughs) Anybody here from Haines City? Good, we don't want anybody here from Haines. Just kidding. We love Haines City. It's a tough town. It's a military town. And again, in in the Jewish rabbinical writings, we have sayings that say, if you want... Wisdom, go to Jerusalem. If you want wealth, go to Nazareth. I mean, there was, it was a main crossroads near Nazareth where you could be a merchant and travel and make your fortune. So Jesus is a Nazarene in that he's from a rejected part of Jerusalem. We're going to see later in his life, uh, the, the Jewish leaders will say, see to it that no prophet comes from Nazareth. And actually they're wrong. There are some prophets that come from the north, and Jesus is one of them. Now, in his boyhood, paragraph 17, we don't know much. Chapter 2 of Luke, verse 40, The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Again, similar to his cousin John the Baptist we saw last week, he grew in all sorts of good ways in the desert. Jesus is growing up in Nazareth, and he clearly spends a lot of time in the Scriptures. I'd reference Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 to 9. But here from the age of four to the age of about 12, we don't know anything more of Jesus than this verse. We do know that at age 12, he goes to Jerusalem, paragraph 18. It says, when Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem, and now Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year for the feast of what? Passover. Say Passover. Good. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Every Jewish man was required three times a year to get to Jerusalem. The biggie was Passover. Passover was New Year's Eve and Fourth of July all rolled into one. So the whole village of Nazareth would start here, come down along the Jordan River, because you didn't want to go through Samaria, which is in the middle of the land, 
and then you'd climb these mountains and go up to Jerusalem. You always went up to Jerusalem. And the whole village would go. It was like a week-long camp out, kind of like our Memorial Day weekend, only longer. And when you would camp along the way, and you would get to Jerusalem, and then you would celebrate the Passover meal. Now, if you had a son who was 12, that was very important. Because next year, that 12-year-old was going to be what? 13. You're still awake. And every 13-year-old boy has to undergo, what do we call it? Bar mitzvah. It's where you, you are symbolically and ceremonially declared a man. So as a 12-year-old, you would go to the temple and you would watch the Jewish bar mitzvah. If you ever get to go to Israel, go to Jerusalem and look for the bar mitzvahs. They're usually on Monday or Tuesday. And it is a, it is a party. It is hilarious. And the men and women are segregated, but the women are all looking over their fences and the, and the little boy gets a well, now he's 13. He gets a table about the size of these tables, and he gets a Torah out, and he reads it, and the rabbi studies him, and then if he gives him the thumbs up, everybody goes, yay, and our son's a man. But there were a bunch of things you had to learn to do that. And so Jesus goes down as a 12-year-old, like he would have done every year with his parents, to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Verse 43, when the feast was over, as they were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but because they assumed that he was in their group of travelers, they went a day's journey and began to look for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to look for him, and his mama was not happy. You can write that in there. How, how can you lose a kid? Well, I'm going I'm I'm to throw you under the bus, dear. We lost a child once. Our oldest son was such a great kid that when the van stopped to get gas, he got out and took his baby brother to the bathroom, brought the baby back out to the van, strapped him in, went in to use the bathroom himself, and while we were in the bathroom, my wife, who was driving, pulled out. These things happen. Now, we only lost him for 10 minutes. You know, 10 minutes down the road, Gwen said, Where's Zach? I don't know. Where's Zach? And I told you well, when, I, when I've spoken about this event before, but our our van became an off-road vehicle. We cut across the interstate on 95 with smoke and dirt coming up from the tires, and we got our baby back. But Jesus was missing a whole day. They were a day out. You know, they probably walked the better part of 20 miles because they're going downhill. They can make some time. And then uh, they have to spend a day coming back. And so verse 46, after three days, they were a day out, a day back, and a day to find him. They found him where? In the temple courts sitting among the teachers and listening to them and asking them questions. Now, what did he ask them? We don't know. But because it was Passover, my guess is he probably asked them questions about Passover. And by the way, 1 Corinthians says, 6 says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So he may have been asking messianic questions. At any rate, verse 47, all the teachers listening to... I'm sorry, and all who heard Jesus were astonished at his understanding and his answers. Again, he knew the scriptures. He was a student of the word of God. When his parents saw him, they were overwhelmed. His mother said, child, why have you treated us like this? She was a Jewish mother. Look, your father and I have been looking for you anxiously. Now, I don't know about Joseph. He's probably looking not so anxiously. But Mother Mary's a hoot, you know. She's a lot younger than Joseph anyway, and she's kind of panicked, and her, ba her, her baby boy is missing. And he replied, verse 49, Why were you looking for me? Did, did you not know that I must be where? 
in my father's house. And again, that tells me even from an early age, he had an awareness of who, in fact, he was. He didn't just, it didn't just happen later. Yet his parents did not understand the remark he made to them. And then verse 50, 51 and 2, paragraph 19. And then he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. But his mother, again, kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom, that's mental, stature, that's physical, favor with God, that's spiritual, and with people, that's social. So from age 13 to 30, Jesus lives in Nazareth. We don't know much about him. We know that he had at least four brothers and at least two sisters. They're mentioned in Mark chapter 6. As the oldest son in a Jewish family, we can assume he learned to be a carpenter. And we can also assume that he felt financially responsible for his siblings. The, the tradition is, and I think there's merit to it, is that somewhere along the line between age uh, 12 and 30 plus, Joseph dies and Jesus is responsible for this family. And now as he's about to start his ministry, uh, he's in a sense going to leave them in the lurch, which might explain why in the Gospels the brothers of Jesus weren't believers in him. James and Jude don't come to faith until after the resurrection. We don't know his sister's names. There were at least two. And we don't know about the other two brothers. But we finally get back to John the Baptist in, in, in his capital letter B, the ambassador of the king, in paragraph 20. This is the message to John. Mark 1.1 says it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Again, Mark is writing to the Romans. He doesn't care about the genealogies or the birth. He just wants to know, is Jesus a good servant? And he's going to start there in chapter 1 and verse 1. Luke says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Luke 3, verse 1, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea and Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip was the tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias was the tetrarch of Abilene. Those are the sons of Herod that take over for him. Herod Jr. and Philip and Trachonitis and Lysanias. Those are the four guys. Each of them got a piece of Israel. During the high priesthood, verse 2, of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, there are some people mentioned here, and again, I'm, I'm always interested in people. God cares about people. But we've got two guys in, in the first verse that I read, uh, Herod and Pilate. Herod is going to be Herod Antipas. And we have two guys in the second verse, Annas and Caiaphas, that are there at the first of Jesus' ministry, and they're also there at the last of Jesus' ministry. If you fast forward three-plus years, Jesus is going to be put to death. But before they put him to death, he has to go to court, and, and he undergoes six trials. There's three Roman trials followed by three Jewish trials. In the Roman court, Jesus was tried for uh, treason, and he was tried before uh, Pilate, and then Pilate sent him to Herod, and Herod sent him back to Pilate. Pilate tried to let Jesus go at least three different times, uh, but he did, the, he did the Roman trials after the Jews had already convicted him. The Jews tried him first, and he was tried by Annas, and then Caiaphas, and then Annas. And in the Jewish trials, he was tried for blasphemy. So these four guys, Herod and Pilate, and Annas and Caiaphas are around at the beginning and at the end of Jesus' uh, ministry. We're dealing here uh, with, with about you know, 26, 28 A.D. Jesus is in his early, early 30s. The start of the ministry will really begin with John, paragraph 21. Remember last week we said what happens to John 
will happen to Jesus. John's birth was announced. Jesus' birth was announced. John is born. Now we have Jesus is born. Now John grows up in the wilderness. Jesus grows up in Nazareth. Now John is going to start his ministry. And then we're going to see in our next session, Jesus will start his ministry as well. And so I'm reading in paragraph 21, John the Baptist leaves the wilderness. The Holy Spirit has come upon him like an Old Testament prophet, which is what he was. And in the Luke account, this is where the harmony is so helpful. You can see Matthew and Mark and Luke. Verse 3 of Luke 3 says, John went into all the region around the Jordan River preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And when we get to the Matthew account, chapter 3 and verse 2 says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So John is ministering over here. This is the Jordan River just north of the Dead Sea. He ministered in a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan, which is interesting. The Pope just was there yesterday. And you can visit there from the Jordanian side. This is the Jordan border here with Israel. And then there's a Jewish baptismal place uh, that you go up here to be baptized in. But this is the Jordanian site here. You can actually go to the uh, the, the Israeli side that's only recently been re, reopened. But John is there and he's ministering and he's saying three things. Repent. Repent means what? Change your mind. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the second thing. And be baptized for the repentance, for the remiss, forgiveness of sins. Now, let me talk just a, briefly about Baptist because he's called John the Baptist. What is baptism? Baptism always means to be identified with something. A baptizo pot was a pot full of dye that they used, even in today's culture, they would fill dye with it, and if you were taking a piece of cloth and you wanted to dye it, you would put it in the cloth, and now the cloth is identified with the new color. So if you're baptized under Jewish thought, you're becoming identified with something. And John is saying, I'm going to baptize you, and I want you to be baptized and identify with this back-to-God movement. Remember, John's goal is to prepare for the coming of Jesus. Luke chapter 3 and verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low and the crooked will be made straight and the rough ways will be made smooth and all humanity will see the salvation of God. Now in verse in the Mark account, chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, People from the whole Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem were going out to him, and he was baptizing them in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. It's not a long walk to go from Jerusalem down this hill to the, to the river. You could get there in about a half a day. And they're being baptized by John. They're identifying with his movement, and they confess their sins, and the Mark account tells us. And then in verse 6, Mark says, chapter 1 and verse 6, John wore a garment made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And that's a reference to Isaiah chapter 20 in verse 2. He dressed in sackcloth. Locust is probably not the bugs, although it could be. It's probably more like a carob. We have up north in America locust trees. I, you grew up near Locust Street. Uh, but he ate honey, and he, and he had a little different diet. He was a Nazarite, and he didn't drink wine. But he, he was kind of a wild dude. I like John. Now, as the ministry's growing, Matthew talks about the explanation of Jesus. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7, paragraph 22. When he, John, saw the many Sadducees or Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, welcome, brothers. No, what did he say? You offspring of vipers, 
Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> See, they, the Pharisees and Sadducees called themselves the sons of Abraham. John says, no, you're, you're sons of snakes. Now let me see, let me, let me tell, you, tell you what's going on here. Anytime any kind of religious movement goes on in Israel, there was, a, there was a ruling body called the Sanhedrin, say Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin would send people to investigate the movement. So they're coming down from Jerusalem, and they get to where John is, and they always travel with great pomp and circumstance. And the first thing they do is just observe. They're not going to interview John. They're going to just observe. And again, what happens to John will let her happen to Je- later happen to Jesus. Therefore, John says, chapter 3 and verse 8 of the Matthew account, produce fruit that proves your repentance, and don't think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God can raise up for children from, for Abraham from these stones, even now. The axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And by the way, you're not producing good fruit. You're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Cross the page in the Luke account, Luke 3, verse 10. So the crowds were asking John, what then should we do? And John gives answers three specific ways. What should we do, John? We want to be baptized. We want to identify with you. John says, well... The person who has two tunics must share one with the person who has none. When the person who has food must do likewise. Second, you tax collectors came to be baptized. They also came to be baptized. They said, teacher, what should we do? He said, collect no more than you're required to. (laughs) And then third, some soldiers asked also, as for us, what should we do? And he told them, take money from no one by violence or false accusation and be content with your pay. What John is saying here is do that which is contrary to the nature of your office. If you're a rich person, you have two tunics. Nobody had two tunics unless you were rich. And it is not in the nature of a rich person to share most of the time. Some of the time it is. But John says do that which is contrary to your nature, share what you got. If you're a tax collector, you made your money by stealing. You extorted funds from the Jewish people. And he says do that which is contrary to your office. Don't steal from people. And then the soldiers, they got very little salary, but in any occupied land, a Roman soldier could walk into your house and say, I like that picture, I'm taking it. There wasn't anything you could do against a Roman soldier. He says, do that which is contrary to the nature of your office and be content with the wages you've got. So John basically says, hey, you guys, you Sadducees and Pharisees, are, ba- are producing bad fruit. Let me tell you what good fruit is. The good fruit is that which is contrary to the nature of your office. Now, here's what happens in, verse, in paragraph 23. John makes a promise. I'll, I'll read from the Luke account. Luke 3.15 says, While the people were filled with anticipation, all wondered whether perhaps John could be the Christ. There's a movement. It's in the wilderness. We're dying for the Messiah to come. God hadn't shown up in Israel for a lot of of years. And John says, I baptize you with what? Water. But one more powerful than I am coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with two things, the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John's saying, look, I'm I'm not that important. I'm not even worthy to unstrap the sandal of the one who's coming. Again, back in the day, when you would send your children for education, you would give him to a tutor for a period of time. And if you were a student, you worshipped that tutor. 
and you cooked for him, and you cleaned for him, and you ran errands for him, and you learned from him everything he could impart to you. The one thing you did not have to do were his sandals. Only a slave had to undo the sandals. So John's saying, look, I'm not even worthy to be a slave of the one who's coming. And you'll know when he gets here because he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Again, there are four baptisms in the New Testament. We'll talk about that in the next session. But if Jesus is your Savior, you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. You are identified with Jesus and the body of Christ. That's what identification with means in baptism. But if you don't identify with Jesus, you're going to be baptized in fire. That's judgment. And so John, from the very beginning, makes no qualms. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the guy you're looking for. He's so much greater than I, I'm not even going to undo his sandals. Verse 7, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clean out his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the storehouse, but the chaff he will burn burn up with inextinguishable fire. And in this way, with many other exhortations, John proclaimed the good news to the people. Now in the next paragraph, John is baptizing, and uh, when we're we're at at the baptism of Christ, John is is the agency here. And so beginning in paragraph uh, 24, we're going to see uh, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. It says in the Luke account, now when all the people were baptized, Luke 3.21, Jesus also was baptized, and while he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a what? A dove. And in a voice came from heaven saying, you are my dear one in whom I am well pleased. Now here's the deal. Jesus shows up. Matthew 3.3 came from Galilee to John to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. John tried to prevent Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. So Jesus replied to him, let it happen uh, now, for it is right for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John yielded to him. The Matthew account, after Jesus was baptized, just as he was coming out of the waters, the heavens opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and the voice from heaven saying this is my one dear son in him I take great delight so here we have the ministry of Jesus it says it happened in the Luke account when he was about 30 and why is Jesus baptized he's baptized to fulfill all righteousness and he's baptized to identify with John's back to God movement John I mean Jesus is there the father is there the spirit is there very few times in the scripture when all three persons of the Godhead are there. So this is a biggie. And this is the first big event in Jesus' ministry. But John didn't know quite who Jesus was at this baptism. And so Jesus shows up. They didn't grow up near each other, but John uh, baptizes Jesus after some resistance. And then Jesus now has the empowering of the Spirit and the approval of the Father. And the first thing he does is he goes out into the wilderness. And any way you go from this area is wilderness. That's some of the most severe countryside on the planet. It's over a thousand feet below sea level. No rain falls there. And Jesus goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted. Paragraph 25, Luke 4. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. By the way, this is called quarantania, where we get the word quarantine. Nobody went there. You wouldn't want to live there. Where for 40 days he endured the temptations from the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were completed, he was famished. Now Satan's going to come along and tempt Jesus. Why? Why is Jesus tempted? Is he tempted to see if he will sin? No, he's tempted to show that he won't. I have a cousin who's a civil engineer. When they build a new bridge, 
They run a big train across it. Do they put the train there to see if the bridge will fall? No, they put the, they put the train there to show you that the bridge will not. So Jesus is going to be tempted from the get-go. He's going to say, Satan has no part in what I'm about. And the first temptation, Satan says, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to do what? Become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man does not live by bread alone. So the first temptation is, take these stones, you're hungry, you haven't eaten in 40 days. Turn them into bread. If, you're, if you are who you claim to be, eat. How does Jesus respond? He quotes from a book of the Bible. Do you know what book that is? Deuteronomy. So Jesus is going to go one-on-one -on -one with Satan from the book of Deuteronomy. Well, that doesn't work. Verse 5, so the devil takes him to a high place and showed him in a flash all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, to you I will grant this whole realm and the glory that goes along with it, for it has been relinquished to me and I can give it to anyone I wish. See, Satan is the ruler of this world. So then, if you will worship me, this will all be yours. Jesus answered him and said, It is written in the book of Deuteronomy, You are to worship the Lord and serve him only. So that doesn't work. So Satan has one more trick up his sleeve. Then the devil brought him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, if you want to quote Deuteronomy, here's a quote from Deuteronomy. He will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will lift you up so you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus says, well, let me tell you what it says in the next verse. You are not to put the Lord your God to the test. So when the devil had completed every temptation, he departed until a more opportune time. So Jesus is tempted and this is such a cool thing to know, and we're going to close with this. Have you ever been tempted? Uh-huh. Have you ever thought, well, Jesus never was tempted like I'm tempted. You know, Jesus was never tempted to sleep through church or to skip church and go to the football game or to watch porn or fill in the blank. But, you know, in the book of Hebrews, there's a verse that says, we have a high priest, Jesus, who is tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. That's a pretty good verse. What does that mean? Well, Jesus was tempted in three areas. In every way like we are, yet without sin. And Satan works the same way now as he did in Jesus' life, as he did in the very Garden of Eden. Did you know that when Satan showed up, he tempted Eve in three ways? He said, Eve, eat this food. And she said, ah, Eat this food. Ah. And in Genesis 3, it says that when the woman saw that the fruit was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was desirable to make her wise, she took of the fruit and ate it and gave it to her husband and then he took the wrap. It's always called the sin of Adam, not Eve. But Satan tempted Eve and Satan tempted Jesus and Satan tempts us with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Lust of the flesh. Too much food or any sexual sin is lust of the flesh. A lot of guys I know struggle with that. I do too. Lust of the eyes. Window shopping can be dangerous to your spiritual health. A lot of women I know struggle with that one. Guys too. Pride of life is for all of us. The pride of life says, I can do this on my own. 
1 John 2 says, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Isn't it great to know that Jesus gets us? He understands what the lust of the flesh is. He understands what the lust of the eyes is. He understands what the pride of life is. How did he defeat temptation? With the Scripture. And so if I'm going to get through the temptations that come my way, I better be building to my life the Scriptures that will help me uh, survive and succeed. Father, we thank you for Jesus that he is tempted in every way as we are, yet never sinned. And so we ask your blessing on us as we go from this place that we would walk with him every step of this life. In your name we pray. Amen.